Hi, I'm Jody Millman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavan. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavan 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. Today, we have two special guests, film producer Lisa Cortez and Billy Mitchell, the resident historian of the landmark Apollo Theater. Lisa started her career in the music industry, working with Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin to establish the Def Jam brand, and then transitioned into filmmaking, working with director, writer, and producer Lee Daniels on such movies as Precious and Monster's Ball. Her current projects include the forthcoming The Remix, Hip Hop X Fashion, and the HBO documentary The Apollo, which we will be discussing today and will be available on HBO in November. Since landing at the Apollo stage door during a waylaid trip to borrow money from his Aunt Essie in 1965, Billy has worked at the Apollo. Becoming a beloved institution himself, as you'll see in the film, Billy's knowledge and affection for the theater are infectious. On October 1st, the HBO documentary The Apollo will be screened as part of the Woodstock Film Festival at Kingston's UPAC Theater. Lisa and Billy, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavan. Lisa, the film premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2019 in April. What was the reaction to the film? It was one of the most incredible nights to premiere the Apollo Theater documentary at the Apollo as the opening night selection of the Tribeca Film Festival. Um, and just the, the range of people from the community and folks who worked on the film and people who worked at the Apollo, that we were able to celebrate the film in the space where so much magic transpired was really special. Now, what was your story arc in telling the story of the Apollo Theater? Well, it's an interesting, I think, uh, story arc that our director, Roger Ross Williams, uh, put together. There is actually several threads. So there's the historical continuum from 1934 to the present. And then if you were to go into our editorial suite, you would see another timeline, which was highlighting moments in Apollo history, such as... Billie Holiday performing Strange Fruit, James Brown, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And then you would see another timeline, which looked at Harlem, American, and African-American history. Because one of the continuums that we wanted to show in this film is the connection between the artists, the space that the Apollo uh, afforded for important conversations that reflected what was going on in the world. Now, this film, as you said, starts in 1934 when the Schiffman started the theater in Harlem and continues to the present day. Now, what were the challenges that you faced in creating this massive work um, of the Apollo Theater and, com- and compressing it into 90 minutes? Well, you know, when the Schiffmans and the Breckers started the Apollo in 1934, um, you know, it, it, who knew? the destination, the landmark status that it would grow to have. 
Um, there's so much to put your arms around in telling this type of story. Um, and, and I think the greatest challenge is the stories that couldn't make it due to time constraints. So, um, but I know that in, you, we talked a little bit before when we were walking in here about the, the massive amount of credits that go into this film. I mean, it's 10 minutes worth of credits at the end of the film. And I'm one of those people that doesn't leave my seat until I've seen every single one scroll by. And so in, in looking at them, I mean, you had film archives, you had interviews with people, you had music permissions that you had to obtain. Who coordinated all of this you know, amazing information that got put in the film. So yes, there was a huge team, and this is a project that's been six years in the making. Um, I have to shout out our partners on this project, Whitehorse Productions, and the producers there that I worked with, Jeannie Alfon Festa and Cassidy Hartman. And um, we just were continuously interfacing and um, kind of a divide and conquer approach to bringing together the different components of this massive story. Now, when you have this story that's, that spans such a long period of time, did you as a producer have any input as to what would be contained within the story and what was going to go on the cutting room floor? Because it seems to me if you have a 90-minute film, you must have shot or put together hundreds of hours worth of, of product for this. Yeah, just the archival alone is, yeah. is tremendous. You know, uh, I think what it comes down to, filmmaking is a collaborative effort. So our North Star is always our director. And Roger came with a really innovative way of telling telling this story, telling a historical story, but keeping it alive and also centered in contemporary conversations. We were aided by our editors, Jean Chen and John Fisher, who spent countless hours kind of like looking at interviews, looking at archives, going back to those timelines I referenced before. Um, and then the, our entire production team, in addition to Cassidy and Jeannie, we also have Nigel Sinclair, Dan Kogan, Nicholas Farrell, Julie Goldman, and Chris Clemens, Carolyn Hepburn. I mean, like, you know, you talk <laughs> about the endless, 10 minutes right? at the end. <laughs> You know, all of us come from that school of, you know, you got to thank everybody who made this because it took everybody to make this. Is there one particular moment that you wanted to see in the film that didn't make it up on the screen? Oh, um, that is a difficult question. Um, I wanted more with, actually, we had, we had an incredible interview with Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah, he was very short. Yeah. yeah, and there was this great story about coming to Harlem, the Beatles' awareness of African-American music and culture and how it led to him writing Blackbird Singing in the Middle mm -hmm. of the Night, mm -hmm. which is about f the freedom of African peoples. And it, I thought that was such a beautiful story, but it really was taking us off the tangent mm -hmm. of the entirety of histories that we were wrapping our arms around. Well, he just briefly mentioned that they'd wanted, that the Beatles, when they came to America, they'd wanted to go to the Apollo. And they were, were warned off. That they were warned off. And it wasn't until a later trip that they finally went to the Apollo. So the funny story is when we interviewed um, him, he said, yeah, and a couple years later, 
Linda and I jumped on the A train and went up to Harlem. <laughs> and, and so you immediately get this image in your mind of Paul and Linda McCartney on the A train going to 125th Street. And you're just like, wow, you know, it, yeah. it, it really says a lot for his true um, interests and, and, and wanting to play homage because he said, you know, this was like a mecca for us. Um, and subsequently, he has performed at the theater. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Now, another question that I had was, when I was doing my research, I saw that Whitehorse posted a video on its website asking for people if they had clips or if they had family stories or remembrances to contact, contact you and share those. Were there any of particular meaning that, that came forward in those... Uh, those, the outreach? There was some great things that we got uh, actually from uh, the Sims family. Um, and uh, it turned out that Howard Sims, who is Sandman Sims' son, he actually works at the theater. His daughter was my mentee. And so they, you know, were able to give us some wonderful archival images. Um, and then we also got some really cool stuff from Jerry Kupfer, who um, we went up to his um, uh, cellar and, and got <laughs> tapes in all different formats and didn't know if they were going to still work. And that's how we found that beautiful footage when the theater was, uh, you know, refurbished uh, uh, before opening under Mr. Sutton. Um, Pigmeat Markham's daughter uh, went and had coffee with her. Uh, we met her. She, her friend, was a friend of Rogers. So at a certain point, when the word got out through the website, through personal relationships, people just started saying, "I think my aunt was a showgirl there, or my <laughs> uncle took pictures." Um, and it globally, we heard from people, and I think that's part of the um, the the. The interesting thing about the Apollo, how it has been a destination for so many people to to journey to. Well, I remember in the film there was a, um, a video of Eartha Kitt, and it was really kind of scratchy. I mean, you could see see it was her. She comes dancing on the stage, and I was wondering whether it looked like somebody's home video. It was the strangest thing. Did was that something that was in the archives? Do you remember, or was it something that someone had turned over to you? I'm not uh, of the th thousands of archival. I'm yeah. not okay. so clear all on right, that one. All right, I'll let that one go. <laughs> now, Billy, I have some questions for you. Sure. Um, do people really call you Mr. Apollo? They really call me Mr. Apollo. So yeah. tell us a little bit about your story in well, connection with the Apollo. Yes. It's quite interesting. It is. It is. It's a interesting and, and a blessing. Uh, I was born and raised in Mount Vernon, New York. I am one of 14 children. Uh, and my family was very impoverished. You know, we were very poor. And I was in foster care. As a matter of fact, one of my brothers was in foster care in this town, Kingston, New York. I was living in White Plains, New Rochelle. But anyway, um, my family moved from Mount Vernon to the Bronx in 1965. My family split up, you know, and I became the oldest at home. And one day we had no food in the house. And my mom sends me to Harlem. My mother was born in Harlem in 1923. And she sends me to Harlem to borrow some money from her cousin. And her cousin lived directly across the street from the backstage door of the Apollo. So when I went there to get to borrow the money, the cousin wasn't home. 
So I crossed to the side of the street where the Apollo was located, and Frank Schiffman, who owned the Apollo, uh, said, hey, kid, you want to make some money? And, and I didn't know what he was talking about. I, I was a little nervous because I'd never been approached by anybody like that. Yeah, kid, you want to make money? I thought it was some kind of weirdo, right? <laughs> and then he calmed me down. He says, no, I, I want you to run to the store for people who are rehearsing inside for a big show, and, they, and they're so busy rehearsing, they're unable to go to the store to get their coffee, their newspapers, their shoes shine. And I started running errands that day, and he let me come back the next day after school. I would take the bus from the Bronx down, then he allowed me to come on the weekends. And before you know it, I'm coming there on a regular, meeting all these great stars. You know, this is 1965. I remember meeting uh, Barry Gordy, and, and, and the, uh, he was on a tour at the Apollo called the Motown Review. It was The Temptations. It was Gladys Knight and the Pips, uh, Moth Reeves and the Vandellas, Marvin Gaye, 15-year-old uh, Stevie Wonder. That's yeah, incredible. It is. You were the first Apollo page. No, there was there other kids before me, I'm sure. I'm sure there were, because, you know, Harlem, I was from the Bronx and Mount Vernon, but he just chose me, and I'm sure there were other kids in the neighborhood that he allowed to go. Yeah. But I had that, I always worked since I was like 11, 10 years old, so I knew how to hustle. I used to shine shoes and deliver newspapers, so I guess I had that, that energy that he wanted, so he allowed me to come there and run errands for him. And you've been working since there? Since 1965. No, 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 no. I, no. I, I, I did that for a couple of years, and uh, James Brown and Marvin Gaye gave me some money so I could further my education. I went on to become a banker. I uh, became, uh, was involved in the finance uh, industry, the fashion industry. Uh, then the theater closed in 1977, and when the theater opened up in 1984, Percy Sutton was like a mentor of mine. Uh, and he offered me a job because uh, I needed a part-time job. Actually, I wanted one, and he offered me a job, and the only position that were available at the time was as an usher, and I, I, I hated that corporate world that I worked in, and Mr. Sutton hired me, and I was about to get married the following year. My wife was furious. Why would you quit a banking job to be an usher? <laughs> to be an usher, right. <laughs> but I took that leap of faith, uh, and um, he gave me opportunities. And I've, I've worked in literally every department at the Apollo Theater over these years, since 1984. Now, we know that the Apollo is not only a music venue, but it's also been what I would consider the creator of the American Idol model for 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 discovering talent. True. Can you talk a little bit about uh, yes. what, when, I'm, what I'm referring to? Yes, when, when the theater opened up in 1984, right? Uh, one of the reasons they, they wanted to present colored reviews. Uh, that's what the show's featuring African-Americans, and that was the Breckers and the Shipman's idea, and they hired this African-American actor from Harlem to produce those shows, and that was Ralph Cooper. And Ralph Cooper had a radio show called the Harlem Amateur Hour Radio Show. And when he brought that radio show to the Apollo Theater, it became known as Amateur Night at the Apollo. And the first female to really, really wow the audience and win was Ella Fitzgerald. And the list goes on and on, from Sarah Vaughn to Billie Holiday to Gladys Knight, Dionne Warwick. They all started on that talent show, which everybody now emulates, you know, Dance with the Stars, American Idol, all the others. What is the audition process like? Do you know? Can you yeah. fill me in on uh, that I a little bit? Be, I used to co-produce Amateur Night with Rob Cooper, one of my many jobs there, and we would audition people. Uh, we still do. We audition people three times a year, and, uh, and the lines get around the corner. Hundreds of people come to audition, and then we give an opportunity to be showcased on Amateur Night. And if you win, you get 
thanks to Coca-Cola, you get uh, $25,000 at the end of the year wow. for the winner of Amateur Night. So it's a, it's a, a wonderful place to be showcased to. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work out well, but sometimes people, because the audience is brutally honest, you, you know our reputation, uh, but they are fair and they know talent and uh, you know, you're always welcome to come back because there have been people who've been actually booed by the audience and did very, very well. Well, let's talk about the boo. Isn't the boo itself something that has taken on a life of its own? Yeah, well, imagine this years ago. Uh, imagine having a tomato thrown at you or an egg. <laughs> right. Or the or, hook. Or, or, <laughs> well, the hook was, was a part of apparatus that was used by the... See, the, the character that the world knows as Sandman was originally called the Executioner. And the first Executioner was a guy named Norman Miller, who they used to call Puerto Rico. And they called him Puerto Rico because he was portly and his middle name was Rick. And the first time he 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 was he saw Amish was back in the 50s. Someone was out there performing. He didn't like, he was a stagehand, by the way. And he's standing in the wings and someone was out there that he thought was terrible. He ran out on stage and he waved his hands like, oh, you're terrible. And the crowd started laughing, right? And so he did that a few other times. And they got a reaction from the crowd, so they figured they would keep it in. And one day he says, I'll get more, more uh, improved than what I do in bringing people up. So he grabbed some of the apparatus that they used to close the curtain. And it was a hook. And he hooked somebody. <laughs> and then he started dragging them off the stage, and that became the norm. And then uh, Sandman stopped doing that when he started doing Amateur Night in 1984. But uh, it was created by Norman Miller, uh, a.k.a. Uh, Puerto Rico. But it also seems the boo is something that the artists learn from. Oh yeah. You know, it's not only the fact that they're that they're being not disrespected, but they're not approved by the audience, but they take away something. First of all, they've been on the stage of the Apollo Theater, which in itself is a prize. Yeah. And it's very intimidating for a lot of artists, even professionals. Uh, to this day, they get intimidated uh, because they think that even if they come for a concert, that the audience might boo them audience is sophisticated. They're not going to boo a professional. They right. only boo people on amateur night, but in their minds, they might think that. But uh, it is something, uh, they don't boo them to be mean or malicious. They're just telling them that at that very moment, collectively, we, the entire audience, feel that you are not ready and you need to get off the stage. <laughs> right now, right? <laughs> and I think the boo speaks to something that's unique to uh, an African-American experience of call and response. Uh, you know, something that comes from the, the church tradition where the minister will extol and say, what do you think? And the congregation is like, da-da-da-da. So this whole exchange, this convening, um, is really unique because, you know, as, um, one of, as Camilla Forbes is in the film, says, you know, we've all been taught when we go to the theater, we're supposed to sit up straight and button up and be proper and keep our emotions inside. But there is something unique in the experience that one can have at the Apollo where this call and response, this we love you or you're not making it is immediately expressed in a strong vocal fashion. Well, one of the things that I noticed about the film and that you referred to is that it ha hasn't always been a great road for the Apollo. It's had some rocky times. Mm -hmm. And that was, it closed in 77 mm -hmm. and then reopened in 85 in time for almost for its 50th anniversary. Yeah. Correct? Correct? What happened in that interim? What was going on? Was it just deteriorating? It was just sitting there. Nothing was happening. 
And at that time, it was in bankruptcy, or who owned it at that time? It was still in the. Well, ship it, was, it was the the 125th Street Realty Corporation had ownership of it, and it was just sitting there. And and then it was, and, and they went into bankruptcy, and that's how Mr. Sutton bought the building out of bankruptcy. And then Mr. Sutton operated it for a while, isn't that correct? Yes. Yes. And then after that, he too found challenges in operating the theater. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a a. a challenge due to capacity and right. competition in the marketplace you know when they when in 1934 you know there's still a lot of segregation in entertainment uh, venues in New York and here is this place in Harlem where African-American artists can come and audiences so it you know it's the only game in town you know in this this beautiful legit theater but with time, when there becomes access to the Beacon, Radio City, uh, countless other venues who can accommodate more than 1,500 people, then the artist is you know, going to take advantage of an opportunity to perform at a bigger venue where they can have a, a, a larger you know, uh, gross amount that they're paid. Now, what's amazing is that there are certain artists that even though they could play at larger venues and did, they always made certain to come back and support the Apollo. You know, what's interesting is that we're sitting in the theater now, which has 1,600 seats, mm -hmm. and kind of went through the same story as the Apollo. Yeah. It, you know, it was um, overshadowed by civic centers and by the outdoor, large outdoor amphitheaters. And for a while, this theater did not do very well. Mm -hmm. But it took the community getting together to, you know, to revitalize it. And again, as you say, there are artists that come here that want to play to 1,600 people. Yeah. Like Meatloaf has been here, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they get certain acts that really want to, to come here and perform for a smaller, intimate crowd. And I'm sure that's the same kind of feeling that happens at the Apollo. That's true. And the artists that I've spoken to, they love the intimacy of, of performing out there. You're right there, you right. know, the front row. Uh, the acoustics are still the best in the world. Oh, I can imagine. At the Apollo, even with the new uh, audio equipment that's uh, available right now, the acoustics in that building are just the absolute best. And just to piggyback on what Lisa said, uh, Bobby Schiffman, uh, Frank Schiffman's son, he mentioned that one of the reasons why they did close, it was because uh, the theater became too small. And also, at the same time in 77, became the invention of eight-track cassette tapes. Rather than people coming to see live shows, people started buying tapes and they stayed at home. And the artists could also pick up larger purses at other venues because mm -hmm. there were more seats and they could distribute more money. And that was one of the downfalls why that theater closed in 77. It was painful for the community because no one ever thought that it would reopen. But the vision of Percy Sutton opened it back up. The, the, it seems like the black, the black community views the Apollo as a kind of home, a safe haven for artists as well as the people that attend. Do you... Am I reading that wrong, or is that correct? I like to think it is not just the black community. I swear to you, unless you come here to the Apollo, you would think that. But just people, entertainment. But we get people that visit us from all over the world. I'm not lying. They're black, they're white, they're Latino, they're Asian. But they know the warmthness of that theater. It's like, really, it's like a family. You, you, your guard is down when you walk through the door. You say, my God. It's something that comes, it's something spiritual almost in the nature uh, that it's spiritual. 
when you walk through that door, I've seen people who've never been around black people in their life and walked in that place and felt so relaxed. It's just a magical place, and I'm so fortunate and blessed to have been a part of it. Now, I have two questions directly for you, Billy, because mm -hmm. I know that you give tours. Yes. Now, what is the, the most frequent question that people ask you about the theater? One of the, the most frequent questions that people ask me is, how old is the building? And I have to respond, the building is actually 105 years old, but it's only been called the Apollo Theater for 85 of those 105 years. Uh, the building was built in 1914 as a burlesque house known as Hertig and Siemens New Burlesque Theater. And then when burlesque was banned in theaters New York by the then mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, new owners buy the building and they renamed the building the Apollo Theater. What is the most unusual question that people ask? Do white people come to the Apollo? No. I get it all the time. <laughs> I'm so very serious. You know, there's the perception and then there's the reality. People perceive that it's just a black thing. And, and that's just being honest. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, uh, white people have all, ever since I've been going there, <laughs> so, and I'm sure even before I started going there, but you know, it, it is what it is. But you know, you, you, you learn by educating people, uh, you learn by talking and, and experience each other's culture. One of the things I noticed in the film is we've talked a little bit about it being um, a theater and, and being the beginning of the showtime at the Apollo and the amateur hour and how it really is a center of a community, but it also is an incubator for new works. Oh. And I was so impressed by the film's treatment of, I hope I'm saying his right. Tanahasi. Yes. Tanahasi Coach. Tanahasi Coach between the world and me mm -hmm. and his dramatization of, the, of the, the letters that he's written to his son. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because to me, that was so fascinating. Um, so we were interviewing uh, Camila Forbes, who's the executive producer at the Apollo, and uh, she mentioned she was going to begin the process of taking the book and translating it into a stage reading. And Roger got so excited. He said, we want to be there when you start that process. Um, and Camila and all of the actors were so generous to allowing us to watch that, that journey, which is a very intimate one. It, um, we included it as a part of a spine in the film because it is a couple of things. It's reflective of the new work and, and the new voices that the theater is challenging. We wanted people to know this theater is not a museum. It is a live, happening, vibrant place of creativity. Um, it also was a device that allowed us to look thematically at things that ta addresses in his book and how they connect to other historical precedents. Um, and just to be able to showcase him and his work was such a great honor because he is truly revelatory in his presence and in everything that he writes. You know, it was really incredible to see, as I said, it, you, you got a very intimate view of the beginning of the process. You see the actors pretty much getting, getting their script for the first time. You know, you see them in the process of rehearsing. Yeah. You see the rehearsal and the setting up on the stage, and then you see parts of the final product, which are really amazing. 
Are there other artists who will be debuting their work or have debuted their work at the Apollo Theater? Well, actually, Between the Worlds and Me is, is returning uh, to the Apollo this fall. It will be there at the end of October. Yeah. And then, Billy, I don't know if you want to talk about the new theaters opening up. Yes. Uh, well, a, a few feet from the Apollo Theater, the Apollo Theater Performing Arts Center is opening up next year. Uh, there's going to be two small venues, a 99-seater uh, and a 99-seater that the Apollo Theater will be managing. And we'll have these spaces. We're going to offer them to uh, organizations in the community at a very low rental fee to educate to, to educate these audiences for schools, for learning, for people to showcase these upcoming works. So they'll have a place to go because a lot of places people don't have a place to go. So we'll be there for the community. It's for not just for Harlem, but for all of New Yorkers. And we're also uh, transferring some of our offices into that, that building. It's going to be 28 stories. It's going to house a hotel. It's going to be apartments. And it's just a few doors away from the Apollo Theater right now. So it's a, it's a wonderful time. It opens next year. That's incredible. I mean, it that's is. another it outreach is. of the Apollo Theater to the community. The Apollo Theater has a very robust education program that is bar none. I mean, we have a very powerful, we reach out to schools, uh, we visit schools, schools visit the Apollo Theater, uh, we teach them the history, we teach them how show business and the business of show happens, you know, for little kids. It's just amazing. And in keeping with the curation of new voices, it's just been announced that Tadahasi Coates is the first artist in residency who will be working with the theater. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. He's got a new book out called A Water Dancer. And he'll be dramatizing that as well? I don't know if that's going to happen, but I know he's the new... But recently he mm -hmm. was at the Apollo mm -hmm. in conversation with Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey, who's chosen the book as the first one in her new book club that is on Apple. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's really on a roll. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So what other challenges do you think the Apollo faces as we look forward to the future? I don't think anything is is, is beyond. I like that. I, I like that. I don't that. think we have any challenges. We 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 we've just been keep rolling on. We've proven it over and over again. It's it's just it's a wonderful place. We we don't consider it challenge. You know, people say, "Well, I got to go to work today." I always say, "I got to go to play today." <laughs> I have so much fun. You know, I, uh, if God lets me live to my next birthday, I'll be seventy years old. I first walked in the door of the Apollo when I was 15. It's been a blast. I'm telling you, there haven't been really any really bad days in that theater ever. Not for me. But uh, you got to come visit. I tell you, listeners, come visit us. Let me give you a tour. <laughs> I would love to do that. Absolutely. I definitely would love Absolutely. to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, you're here at, in Kingston at UPAC because you're part of the Woodstock Film Festival. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and your participation in the festival? That's pretty exciting. Well, I think as we all know that Mayura is someone you cannot turn down. <laughs> and she, as the executive director of the festival, has been so passionate about this film since she saw it opening night of Tribeca and was just like, I must have it, I must have it, I must have it. And um, I think for us as filmmakers, a lot of people have approached us to screen this film at their festival. Uh, and many offers we've turned down, but this is one we couldn't because we 
believe in the Woodstock Film Festival. It's in its 20th anniversary. The hard work that's been put into cultivating audiences and the tremendous love and respect that this film, that this festival has for filmmakers and for films. Well, I want to thank you, Lisa and Billy for sitting down with us Thank here you. backstage with oh, the Bardivon. It's really been wonderful. It's a wonderful film, and I'm going to urge everybody to, if they can't attend the film festival, when is it going to be on HBO in November? November 6th on HBO. You will please join us, and we will take you backstage yeah. at the Apollo. Yeah. We will take you into Harlem. You will see Patti LaBelle. Paul McCartney, Common, Smokey Robinson, yeah. all these incredible artists sharing about the magic that takes place at this remarkable institution. Well, thank you again, and enjoy yourselves here in Kingston. Thank you so much thank for inviting us. Thanks again to Lisa Cortez and Billy Mitchell and Kingston's UPAC Theater for hosting our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast. Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Millman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website or Facebook page at Backstage with the Bardavon. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Backstage with the Bardavon.